President Obama and China's president struck a groundbreaking deal to limit greenhouse gases. Major Garrett is traveling with the president on his Asian trip. The climate deal requires faster cuts in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions and commits China, for the first time, to reducing its own emissions, but not before 2030. As the world's two largest economies, energy consumers and emitters of greenhouse gases, we have a special responsibility to lead the global effort against climate change. That clip, taken from a CBS morning news show which premiered back in 2014, is something of a time capsule. Then-President Barack Obama had just struck a landmark deal with Chinese Premier Xi Jinping, taking the first concrete steps in decades towards limiting emissions on behalf of the world's leading emissions contributors. That agreement marked a major step forward for global climate negotiations and set the stage for the conference, which would take place in Paris in 2015. As a result, all eyes were focused on the summit between the two leaders at that time, and Scientific American published a lengthy report detailing the agreement as well as analyzing the potential consequences. Quote, The presidents of the world's two most polluting nations agree. Something should be done about climate change. And they're just the leaders to do it, per the terms of what President Barack Obama called a historic agreement announced November 12th between the U.S. and China. Although neither country has plans to stop burning coal or oil in the near future, both countries now have commitments to reduce the greenhouse gases that result. As the world's largest two economies, energy consumers, and emitters of greenhouse gases, we have a special responsibility to lead the global effort against climate change, said Obama in a joint press conference with President Xi Jinping, wrapping up a visit to Beijing, which included that joint effort on climate change. The U.S. will double the speed of its current pollution reduction trajectory, which has seen carbon dioxide emissions fall roughly 10% below 2005 levels to date. The country will now aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. That's in addition to the 17 percent reduction below 2005 levels due by 2020 and shows the kind of five-year planning the U.S. would like to see adopted in international plans to combat climate change. In other words, ever-increasing ambition and reduction targets delivered every five years this is an ambitious goal, but it is an achievable goal, Goal, Obama said. It puts us on a path to achieving the deep emissions reductions by advanced economies that the scientific community says is necessary to prevent the most catastrophic events of climate change. Although Chinese leaders are quite fond of five-year plans, their new climate version would not begin until around 2030 under the terms of the new agreement. That is when the country's CO2 pollution will peak, advancing the Chinese war on pollution onto the invisible front. The nation will also strive to reach that peak even sooner. Just as Vice Premier Zhang Guala pledged at the United Nations in September to peak total CO2 pollution as soon as possible, now Xi has followed through in November with the first agreed-upon date to cap its global warming pollution by 2030. China is already the world leader in new nuclear and new renewable energy sources, and the energy intensity of its economy dropped by more than 19% between 2006 and 2010. But this week's commitment will require an acceleration in these already fast-paced transition efforts. 
At the same time, the U.S. and China will continue to collaborate on developing the kind of CO2 capture and storage that could help clean coal burning for power plants, but also industry, such as steel and cement making. That change will come through increased funding to the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, one of the fruits of the last deal La one of the fruits of the last deal between the two countries in 2009 and at least one large-scale pilot project. This project will not rely on flushing more oil out of the ground with the CO2 to be buried, as U.S. CCS projects have done, but rather serve as a bid to help China solve China's water crisis by using CO2 to produce fresh water from an underground saltwater aquifer. The project is expected to inject 1 million tons of CO2 and create approximately 1.4 million cubic meters of fresh water per year, a major technological advance if achieved. Trade will also play a role. The tariff agreement signed this week by the two countries may extend to green goods in the future, such as more energy-efficient and resilient building materials. After all, how China builds its cities in the few decades will lock in either highly polluting energy for decades or not. The agreement between the two countries that together emit more than 40% of global CO2 pollution suggests a strong deal will be signed by the world's nations in Paris in 2015, under the terms of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, unlike Copenhagen in 2009. Prior to that meeting, the U.S. and China pledged to cooperate but made no firm commitments to reduce pollution, resulting in a last-minute hullabaloo to salvage international efforts known as the Copenhagen Accord. This week's agreement does not mean, however, that the problem of climate change is solved. The U.S. and China are still on pace to add billions of metric tons of CO2 pollution each year into the atmosphere. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change suggests that the world has already put into the atmosphere about half the carbon it can to avoid more than 2 degrees Celsius of global warming, and time is running out. Already, global average temperatures are up nearly 1 degree Celsius, and atmospheric concentrations of CO2 have touched 400 parts per million for the first time since Homo sapiens sapiens walked on the Earth. End quote. As we have discussed throughout our analysis of this topic area, China only began to industrialize in the late 20th century, much later than other nations which we would consider to be superpowers today. In fact, according to some definitions, it is still technically developing, a fact which we will undoubtedly discuss later in today's episode and which caused a rift in climate negotiations which took place at COP27, COP27. While negotiations surrounding climate change have taken place for nearly 50 years at this point, China's late development essentially limited their ability to commit to any reductions in emissions until fairly recently. The Kyoto pr Protocols included what are essentially the first modern emissions restrictions, and while China was present during those negotiations, they took a far, far more laissez-faire approach in committing their country to any real sort of change. As such, the agreement pre discussed previously at length by Scientific American was the first real commitment by China regarding its carbon footprint and marked a major victory for the Obama administration. As was remarked upon there, the pa Paris Climate Conference, which took place the following year, in 2015, also included major agreements signed off upon by Chinese representatives and set out many of the targets global leaders are still operating on today. 
All of that being said, it's important to take the Kyoto Protocols into account when examining the history of China's climate commitments, considering the importance of that meeting in a historical sense. As was argued by The Diplomat in an article published back in 2015, quote, let it be recalled, for example, that the basis for Beijing's carbon and methane emissions pledges dates back not only to the 2015 Paris Agreement, but also to the Kyoto Protocol, the first international agreement on an intent to curb greenhouse gas emissions. At the time of the Kyoto meeting 25 years ago in 1997, China and the bloc of G77 developing countries were not required to make any commitments on GHG emissions. Nevertheless, the protocol itself created a now-taken-for-granted and internationally recognized framework for collective climate action. It was only at the Kyoto meetings that there was a global recognition among world governments on the need to acknowledge and commit to addressing the planetary harm of GHG emissions. In a concerted effort to align itself with this new global understanding, the Chinese government at the time also initiated a gradual institutional reform so as to ensure the means for government coordination on climate. Essentially, the significance of introducing domestic-level climate policies is perhaps best understood in the fact that climate change targets began to be included in legally binding targets in China's national development plans. As such, sustainability and environmental protection, along with GDP growth, became part of the performance evaluation for local governments." End quote. Between Kyoto and Paris, climate conferences had paved the way for China to begin placing significant limits on its emissions coming into 2016. And, as such, Quote, in 2016, there was a concerted shift in the nature of bilateral climate change agreements, moving away from issues of exclusively bilateral importance and toward using the bilateral relationship to shape multilateral responses. The U.S. effort to reach a global climate deal in Paris through bilateral agreements with China is one such example. Two other key areas where bilateral agreements between had important implications for global climate action is in the Montreal Protocol and International Civil Aviation Organization. In 2014, the U.S. government made a strategic decision to announce its intended nationally determined contribution to the Paris Agreement jointly with China. The United States announced its intention to achieve an economy-wide target of reducing its emissions by 26-28% below its 2005 level by 2025 and to make best efforts to reduce its emissions by 28%, while China announced its intention to achieve the peaking of CO2 emissions around 2030 and to make best efforts to peak early and to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to around 20% by 2030. The joint announcement had a major impact around the world. It was the first time China had come forward so early and so aggressively to announce its climate targets, and the first time the two largest emitters had made such an announcement jointly. The announcement set the stage for other countries to announce their own climate targets over the following months, so that by the time leaders gathered at Paris at COP21 in December 2015, 180 countries, representing nearly 95% of global emissions, had already announced their own climate targets. This was crucial to building the international momentum that led to a successful new agreement being reached. The Montreal Protocol on Substances that Deplete the Ozone Layer has been hailed as the most successful environmental treaty in history. 
While the Montreal Protocol was not intended to be a climate agreement, sometimes addressing one problem creates unintended consequences, especially dealing with complex air pollution chemistry and greenhouse gases. The phase-out of CFCs led to the creation of hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, an ozone-depleting substance that can be up to 10,000 times more potent than carbon dioxide. President Obama and President Xi first discussed the issue of phasing out, phasing out HFCs at the Sunnyland Summit in June 2013. Between 2013 and 2016, bilateral discussions continued, and the momentum built in the international negotiations to put forth an amendment to the Montreal Protocol to address HFCs. On October 15, 2016, at the 28th meeting of the parties to the Montreal Part- Protocol in, Ro- in Rwanda, 197 countries reached an agreement on an amendment to phase down HFCs. Under the amendment, countries committed to cut the production and consumption of HFCs by more than 80% over the next 30 years. One category of carbon dioxide emissions that has long been emitted from international climate talks is that of aviation emissions. Airplanes are responsible for about 2.5% of global carbon dioxide emissions, but also emit oxides of nitrogen and produce contrails, the combined effects of which could more than double aviation's impact on global warming. Aviation's emissions were not included in the Kyoto Protocol or the Paris Agreement, in part due to the challenge of addressing cross-border emissions. At their meeting in 2016, President Obama and President Xi committed to working together to reach a successful outcome this year on the ongoing negotiations to reach a deal on a global market-based measure for addressing greenhouse gas emissions from international aviation. After close bilateral engagement between the United States and China, as well as extensive multilateral negotiations among member states, an agreement was reached on October 6, 2016. End quote. That text was taken from a CSIS explainer published on their website and updated regularly. While the history of climate cooperation between China and the rest of the world is brief, It is also complicated, due to the way in which climate conferences are constructed and operated. However, as we have discussed up to this point, the CCP remained entirely open to negotiation leading into 2016, working alongside the U.S. in several instances to release targets, show international leadership, and reduce China's carbon footprint. However, as we have heard multiple times in our discussion of this topic, those negotiations would eventually break down only to be rekindled to some extent at the G20 summit, which just took place. So, what caused the negotiations to fall apart? That's what I hope to explain here in this episode, right after these messages. So stay tuned. Welcome to the latest Patreon episode of Stock Issues, Challenges to Climate Cooperation, presented by the Missoula Debate League. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and this week's episode takes a closer look at the history of China's climate cooperation, especially in regards to agreements with the U.S. We will then move into a discussion regarding a potential turn, which is open to the negation. Stock Issues is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found, so don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to our RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. 
Things are always in motion over here at the Missoula Debate League, so check us out on social at MissoulaDebateLeague.com, all lowercase, um, no spacing or punctuation, or visit our website. Thank you for tuning in, and now on to the episode. President o- For those of us familiar with the American political environment over the past decade or so, it is perhaps unsurprising that negotiations between the U.S. and China took a downwards turn following the 2016 election. President-elect Donald Trump had railed against China in what was one of the most contentious elections held in living memory and had made it clear that an economic war was impending upon his entry into the Oval Office. Additionally, as was reported upon by Time magazine in 2016, quote, President Donald Trump has falsely called climate change a hoax invented by China, incorrectly suggesting that wind turbines cause cancer, and dismissed a landmark scientific report produced by the federal government's own scientists. His administration has sought to roll back key climate regulations at every turn, end quote. President Trump's rhetoric towards China wasn't the only contributing factor to the breakdown of negotiations between the two countries. As was noted at the end of the previous quotation, the administration also took steps to limit the U.S.'s commitment to its previously agreed-upon climate targets. According to an NPR report published in 2020, quote, The United States will formally leave the Paris Agreement on Wednesday, no matter who wins the election. Of the nearly 2,000 nations that signed the agreement, the U.S. is the only one to walk away from its promises to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. President Trump originally announced his intention to withdraw from the landmark agreement in 2017 and formally notified the United Nations last year. A mandatory year-long waiting period ends on Wednesday, a coincidence that nonetheless highlights the Trump administration's commitment to derailing efforts that address climate change. The U.S. has committed more cumulative carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than any other country since the industrial era began began in the mid-1800s. Current U.S. emissions are falling, but far too slowly to avoid catastrophic warming. Luckily for the global climate negotiations, the administration which took over following President Trump's withdrawal from from the Paris Agreement was much more open to working with the international community to limit global warming. President Joe Biden has had previously acted as vice president within the Obama administration and had therefore been a part of the negotiations which originally set the the China-U.S. partnership on climate change in action. As such, it came as no surprise to the global community when Nature reported that, quote, Discussions on climate change between the two countries ramped up when U.S. President Joe Biden took office in January 2021, after being on the back burner for several years. In April, climate envoy John Kerry became the first senior member of Biden's administration to visit China, meeting Zhui Zhengha, China's representative on climate change. A second trip followed in September, and at the climate summit in Glasgow, United Kingdom in November, the two countries signed a joint declaration to enhance climate actions in the 2020s, including setting standards for emissions reduction, deploying carbon capture and storage technologies, and measuring and controlling methane emissions. 
Kerry and she met again at the World Economic Forum in Davos in May, end quote. Moreover, as was reported by AP News soon after the conference in Davos, quote, the world's top carbon polluters, China and the United States, agreed Wednesday to increase their cooperation and speed up action to rein in climate damaging emissions, signaling a mutual effort on global warming at a time of tension over their other disputes. In back-to-back -back news conferences at UN climate talks in Glasgow, Chinese climate envoys um, and U.S. counterpart John Kerry said the two countries would work together to accelerate the emissions reductions required to meet the goals of the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change. It's beneficial not only to our two countries, but to the world as a whole, that the two major powers of the world, China and the U.S., shoulder special international responsibilities and obligations. We th need to think big and be responsible, Kerry told reporters. The steps we're taking can help answer questions people have about the pace at which China is going and help China and us be able to accelerate our efforts. China has also agreed for the first time to crack down on methane leaks following the lead of the Biden administration's efforts to curb the potent greenhouse gas. Be Beijing and Washington agreed to share technology to reduce emissions. End quote. Unfortunately for the Biden administration, however, the political atmosphere here in the U.S. soon caused the relationship to take another turn for the worst. As was re heavily reported on here in the U.S., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi took a trip to Taiwan, a country China historically refuses to recognize. During the first civil war, which began to usher in the reign of the Communist Party in China, the existing political leadership of in the country fled to what is now known as the island of Taiwan. Obviously, the CCP won that war and has long since claimed the island as a part of China's sovereign territory, hoping to enact revenge on the leaders who escaped now almost a century ago. The island of Taiwan has the protection and recognition of the U.S. along with most of the rest of the world, making the whole issue a sticking point any time it comes up in the context of the CCP. So, when Speaker Pelosi decided to visit Taiwan, the CCP was rather displeased and levied an array of sanctions meant to incentivize against similar actions in the future. As was once again reported on by Nature, quote, cooperation between the United States and China on global warming has been dealt a major blow after China's foreign ministry suspended climate talks with the United States. The decision came in response to last week's high-profile trip to Taiwan by Nancy Pelosi, U.S. Speaker of the U.S. House of Repre Representatives, which China says violated its sovereignty. Researchers say a temporary freeze in discussions will probably affect only high-level political engagements, but that a longer standoff could have a chilling effect on academic collaborations. Climate discussions have always been somewhat immune from the turbulent bilateral politics between the U.S. and China, says Li Shuo, a policy advisor at Greenpeace China in Beijing. But the announcement last Friday brought this relationship to a very new place. A protracted rift between the two could also threaten the success of discussions at the next round of global climate talks in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, in November. Meetings between the United States and China have been crucial in facilitating multilateral consensus at previous summits, says Fei Tang, a climate policy researcher at Xinhua University in Beijing. I hope that China and the U.S. can resolve this conflict soon and go back to the regular routine. 
Researchers say that diplomatic tensions have so far not affected academic interactions. Tang thinks it's likely that talks with researchers who work closely with the Chinese and U.S. governments to inform high-level policy decisions, such as on methane, will continue. But he notes that collaborations had only just begun to grow under the Biden administration. There are also, there are also no signs that other interactions driven by the scientific community will be halted. Fan Dai, director of the Chinese or California-China Climate Institute at the University of California, Berkeley, which supports joint climate policy research in California and China, says the Institute's work, including on methane reduction projects involving the state of California and China's Ministry of Ecology and Environment, will continue. But some research say if the deadlock drags on, academic collaborations will be affected, and scientists will be reluctant to form new partnerships. The Glasgow Agreement was a political signal that such collaborations are acceptable, says Finnamore. Now, Chinese research institutions and their leaders will wonder whether or not they're inviting trouble by continuing on unless they get a very clear message that business as usual is accepted, says Julio Friedman, chief scientist at Carbon Direct. End quote. As was noted in the latter half of that article, the restrictions implemented by China in response to Speaker Pelosi's trip ended up doing little to actually limit the academic collaboration taking place between the U.S. and China. With academic lines of communication still open, scientists in both countries were able to continue the research which was already taking place. As was predicted, this proliferation of the discussion led to an almost immediate thawing of tensions, specifically in regards to climate discussions, and, following the COP27 conference which took place in Egypt, China agreed to once again begin discussing emissions targets and green technology with the U.S. According to NBC News, quote, Chinese President Xi Jinping has agreed to resume climate change talks with the U.S., um, President Joe Biden said on Monday three months after she suspended those con contacts in anger over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. China and the U.S. are the world's number one and number two climate polluters. Resumption of what have been the country's give-some-get-some negotiations on climate efforts is seen as crucial to achieving the massive cuts in use of coal and other fossil fuels needed to slow global warming. Biden and Xi met on the sidelines of the Group of 20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. Both committed Monday to directing their government's senior officials to maintain communication and deepen constructive efforts on matters including climate change and security of the world food supply, the White House said. John Kerry's one-on-one -on -one relationship with his Chinese government counterpart proved pivotal to striking the landmark 2015 Paris Climate Accord. Kerry was then Secretary of State and is now Biden's climate envoy. Persuading China to move much faster to cut its reliance on dirty burning coal has been a main and so far unrealized effort of Kerry's climate diplomacy under Biden. Uh, Annie Dis Disgupta, head of the World Resources Institute, said in a statement Monday that the global community was breathing a sigh of relief at the news the two nations were resuming joint climate efforts, end quote. That brings us through to today, with negotiations once again taking place between the world's leading carbon emitters. While the relationship in recent years has been anything other than smooth sailing, both countries have taken major steps to limit their own contributions and have begun to take a leadership role on the global stage as well. 
While China may still use environmental protection as a means of political leverage at times, the partnership, which has grown across the Pacific, is an excellent example of the steps China has taken to begin prioritizing the environment in a collaborative manner. After the break, we will move into a quick discussion of a potential turn which is accessible to the negation, so stay tuned. This episode of Stock Issues is presented by the Missoula Debate League. Founded by Eli Brown, the Missoula Debate League seeks to empower students from across Montana, eastern Washington, and northern Idaho in their journey to become better debaters, students, and, most importantly, people. We just launched our second round of debate briefs, which are currently available for free on our website. We highly recommend taking a look at those briefs as they are full of resources meant to better prepare debaters for competition. We are even offering private coaching for the upcoming season, meant to supplement the coaching already provided through the school. Learn more about our experience, sliding fee scale, or sign up today for a free virtual consultation at www.missoulatabateleague.com. Now, back to the show. At this point, I want to move into a brief discussion of a potential turn for the negation, based on, an an, based on an affirmative point, which I'm sure will be made in almost every round taking place on this topic. Given the text of the resolution, it would seem logical that most affirmatives are going to l run some sort of contention which focuses in on the positive effect the resolution would have on the environment as a whole. We will have to make a couple of assumptions here in order to set up the turn, but I do believe that the, er, that the affirmative environmental contention will be very similar round to round. To begin, an environmental contention from the AF will start with a recognition of harms, which will probably include some sort of brink which argues that we need to act now. An article published by the New York Times back in 2019 makes exactly this point, pointing out the fact that, quote, in a recent commentary in the journal Nature, scientists from the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in D Germany and other institutions warn that the acceleration of ice loss and other effects of climate change have brought the world dangerously close to abrupt or irreversible changes or tipping points. End quote. From there, the affirmative will move into their link, which may or may not be broken into two sections. If there are two sections, an external and internal link, the external link will probably focus on China's role as an emissions contributor, a claim which was, that it, um, was also published by the BBC. Quote, China emits more greenhouse gas than the entire developed world combined, a new re report has claimed. The research by Rhodium Group says China emitted 27% of the world's greenhouse gases in 2019. The U.S. was the second largest emitter at 11%, while China was third, with 6.6% of emissions. Scientists warn that without an agreement between the U.S. and China, it will be hard to avert dangerous climate change. China's emissions more than tripled over the previous three decades, um, the report added. The Asian giant has, has the world's largest population, so its per-person emissions are still behind the U.S., but the research said those emissions have increased too, 
tripling over the course of two decades, end quote. From there, the AF will link out to the positive benefits implementation of the resolution would have on the environment. Given the fact that China would be forced to take its foot off the gas pedal in terms of development and instead turn its attention to the global crisis we seem to be stumbling into. However, the end of the contention isn't especially important in the context of the turn I'm setting up, so uh, uh, seeing as we will only be stealing the first two arguments in order to build up the entire contention, which will act as the turn. So, following the external link, China's emissions contributing, or following the external link, which was China's emission contribution numbers, the NIG will want to instead focus on the fact that contributions that the contribution estimate is only a snapshot in time. Due to China's recent industrialization, they actually far um, fall far behind the Western world in terms of historical contribution. Moreover, there are no limits on the there were no limits on the Western world as it developed into a superpower, and as such, it seems wildly unfair to put stringent limits on China. According to RHG, an independent environmental research firm, quote, while China exceeded all developing countries combined in terms of annual emissions and came very close to matching per capita em emissions in 2019, China's history as a major emitter is relatively short compared to developed countries, many of which had more than a century head start. A large share of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere each year hangs around for hundreds of years. As a result, current uh, global warming is the result of emissions from both the recent and more distant past. Since 1750, members of OECD blocks have emitted four times more CO2 on a cumulative basis than China. This overstates the relative role of OECD emissions in the more than one degree Celsius increase in global temperatures uh, because a large scare of share of annual CO2 emissions is absorbed in the Earth's carbon cycle in the decades after release. But China still has a far way to go before surpassing the OECD on a cumulative contribution basis. End quote. Given their historical contribution, it would seem as though the West should ethically be much more on the hook for combating global warming as compared to those nations who industrialized in the last 40 years. And yet, even despite the hypocrisy of such restrictions, China has found a way to win on both fronts, decoupling economic growth from emissions contributions altogether. Quote, in fact, strong socioeconomic ob objectives such as targeted poverty alleviation, rural revitalization, dual carbon targets, and the Belt and Road Initiative are frequently used in China to achieve environmental protection. Since 2000, these objectives have resulted in unprecedented increase in the central government's investment in environmental sustainability across the board. China is becoming increasingly more aware of the significant and necessity of develop developing an ecological civilization and separating environmental effects from economic success. This has led to China's designating sustainable development as part of its national plan. In view of the successful implementation of national guidelines and strategies, the central government should maintain medium and long-term large-scale investments, diversified and systematic solutions, and a coordinated and functioning organizational system with a focus on classification, which would help us to achieve further results in both economic and environmental terms. The decoupling of China's environmental impacts from economic growth is now emerging. 
and Chinese evidence shows that economic growth and environmental protection can achieve a win-win situation, end quote. China has found a way to prioritize economic development and environmental protection simultaneously, tying the two together in a positive feedback loop which has positive impacts on both sides of the coin. If China were to prioritize one more than the other, they may throw this current miracle out of balance and lose the, abil the ability to benefit both simultaneously. As such, it is actually the negation which benefits the environment while also growing the Chinese economy and is therefore on balance the best option when choosing a winner for any given round. At least, that would be the argument. Thanks again for tuning in to a new edition of Stock Issues, and until next time, go win some rounds. Thank you again for tuning in to the latest edition of Stock Issues, Challenges to Climate Cooperation, presented by the Missoula Bay League. We recently released the second round round of MDL debate briefs available for free on our website. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and you can now listen to Stock Issues wherever podcasts are found. Please don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for being a part of our community, and be sure to tune in next time for another edition of Stock Issues.